Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram, nonviolent communication, and resonant healing with personal stories from individuals living real human lives. My name is Karen Nance, self-pres dominant, social, sexual blind, three-wing two, with three seven-one trifix and ENFP cognitive preferences. I hope you enjoy these stories. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Blind Spot. I am really excited today to have on the show a friend that I've made the last year that I just feel so blessed to know. And one of the things that I love about this platform is that so often we get to hear from the well-renowned teachers on a lot of different podcasts. And what I love about this platform is that I really want some of the voices that carry incredible amounts of wisdom, but may be less publicly known to have an opportunity to share some of their learnings. And Linda has a long career as a coach. She was trained through the Empowerment Institute program and nine or 10 years ago um, discovered the Enneagram and has taken all of her extensive knowledge and life experience into this Enneagram work and has been a student in the green room with me the last year, which is uh, being run by Catherine Bell and Russ Hudson through the Awakened Company. And the opportunities that I've had to connect and learn from Linda has really felt like a beautiful gift. And uh, she identifies as point one. I'll let her share a little bit more about her wing and instinctual stack, although I believe she's social, self-pres, sexual blind. And I don't know if Linda likes tri-type or not. If she wants to talk about that, she can share some of that. But without further ado, um, Linda is a moderator for Enneagram openings, where a lot of the voices in the Enneagram community share thoughts and ideas. So she has been on the sidelines doing that gift of the one, which is uh, improving, reforming, being that steady presence that is really making a lot of these ideas come together for many different people in many different ways. I see her social instinct in action there. And so without further ado, I want to introduce you to Linda. Please tell us a little bit about um how you came to the Enneagram, how you've come to type and stack, and we'll start with there. Hmm. Thank you, Kara. Uh, yeah, it's been a very rich um, dialogue that we've had many times over the past year, getting to know you and getting to bounce ideas off of you and hearing your thoughts. And I love these kind of conversations. It it just awakens so many, so much curiosity in me. And then I, I get off the phone and I, I want to dive into it more and learn about this and learn about that and weave it all into what I already know, or I thought I knew because it's continuously adjusting and uh, reconfiguring what, uh, what I think I know about the Enneagram. And I know that you do this because I'm just going to pause. Like this whole interview is coming off of a conversation that we had last week. And then you kind of took that whole conversation to a whole nother level and had shared in an email thread, some like amazing observations. And I just feel like every time we talk, I'm like, that should be a recording. Other people like should hear these words. So yeah, I just wanted to name that 
I feel like that's exactly what you do. And I just feel so grateful that people are then willing to come on this platform and have these conversations live because I think this is how we learn. Well, thank you. And I will share that coming on this is a stretch for me because as a, I don't know if this has to do with my being one, but maybe it does not, has nothing to do with it, but I am a, what I would call a slow processor in that I like to think things through before I speak. Uh, if I'm doing public speaking, I like to be very prepared, you know, no surprise there. Um, I will write my thoughts down and, you know, rewrite and edit and then rehearse the speech over and over again before I get up in, uh, in front of an audience. And by the time I do that, I can feel really relaxed and, and comfortable because I feel a sense of confidence in what I'm doing. I'm not great at speaking extemporaneously. That's, that's one of your superpowers. I mean, you can speak very intelligently and knowledgeably and move from subject to subject uh, with great skill. For me, that's, that's more of a stretch. So I've but I'm going to pause you here, though, because I'm just pushing back. I think that's a blind spot, Linda. Like when we have conversations on the phone, you're speaking extemporaneously. And I'm just like, wow, I love how she's weaving together all of these ideas. And what I think is so great about a podcast platform is that we just get to have a conversation. So listeners are getting an opportunity to see, oh, this is what I get to experience with Linda whenever we get an opportunity to talk. And so I just love challenging what I'm going to go ahead and call sometimes a limiting belief, because mm -hmm. I think that even Ben, I think he identified with this last week when we were talking as being a little bit less spontaneous. But when you get somebody into a zone where you have clearly been feeding your heart, mind and soul for so long, and we just start talking, I just want to highlight that it does flow out of you. And I think that we'll see that here. And if not, that's why I love the edit function. But I think it was funny because we um, got on this call and you started saying, okay, so since I decided to do this and I wanna celebrate that I think I asked you yesterday and here we are today, you're like, I've taken some notes. And I'm like, oh, I'm so glad you did because I was gonna look into a few things around what I thought we were talking about and I didn't. So <laughs> I think that's a perfect example of the difference between a one and a three, if you wanna to speak to that a little. Yeah, um, I wish I could, uh, I will share that. So my my core type is, one, my wing is nine. Um, I am not oriented to the tri-type, but I do know that three and eight are the two types that I have the least uh, interface with. So it's hard for me to get inside uh, the, the whole experience of life through the three lens. I love watching it and observing it and someone like yourself, especially where you've done so much, so much inner work. Um, but it's, it's like, it's, I just like am amazed because it, it does, it feels quite different, uh, from my own, my own, um, perspective, my own lens that I see light through. Yeah. And I'll just name, uh, listeners know that my mother's a one. Um, I'll also share my office manager is a one. My nurse practitioner is a one. My sound engineer is a one. I think that, I just really vibe well with one energy because um, 
A, I have a healthy inner critic, so I can definitely identify with what ones live with in that domain. But because I've had so many amazing ones in my life, I realize I'm very operationally challenged. And it seems to be something about uh, the one energy that just the universe sends it to me. And I have so much gratitude because it's an area that I have definitely not developed and uh, could lean into a little more. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, that we we ones need a lot of that affirmation because the inner critic one time heard that the inner critic for one is on is on high volume about 95% of the time, which is yeah. I can believe it. It is just really um it gets to be overwhelming at times, but we all have our strategies. We learn over time how to deal with it, how to work with it, and it can end up being a leverage point to get get us to a place of of inner growth when we recognize it and and then it takes us uh into the direction of learning more about how to deal with it how do you work with it i have been really curious about this i would say if you say your inner critic what did you say like 95 percent of the time it's online well you know who can measure these things but yeah it feels that way yeah I, like everything that everything I do, everything I say, there's a little part of me, at least, that's doing a second guess of maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe yeah. I, oh, and I forgot to say this and what. It, oh, and I behaved this way. What it, maybe that wasn't appropriate. Like it's very subtle. Most of the time, it's not like screaming at me, but yeah. I can just sort of if I really notice it's there in the background doing this running commentary constantly. So when you notice it, what is your Jedi move for all the ones out there? Like what has worked for you when you're like, oh, hello, inner critic. Thank you for joining me in this Mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. A lot of it, I would say, has to do with learning not to push back hard on it, to just sort of notice it, recognize it, say, oh, okay, there you are. All right. I hear you. You don't have to talk so loud. I'm aware of what you're saying. I don't necessarily agree with you. Maybe I'll take that little piece of it and, you know, take note of that. And the rest of it, I think I'm just going to kind of push to the sideline because it doesn't really make sense to me. That's like an old, uh, an old track, an old um, voice that I'm, it's just tired. And I, I'm just, you can just shut up for now. Okay. So am I hearing that you like shift attention? So like, I'm kind of, it's not like a mindfulness practice. It's like, ooh, inner critic wants to hook my attention over here, but mm-hmm. I see you and I am going to choose to shift my attention this way. Is that sort of what's happening inside of you? That's very well expressed. Yes, it is. It becomes very intentional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I'm not noticing it, if I'm not intentional about it, then it hijacks me very yeah. quick. Yeah. And then I start feeling the tension in my body yeah. of all of that, you know, neuroses about, oh my gosh, you know, maybe I should have said this or that and so forth. And so if I cut it off at the pass and I notice it and I identify it, I, you know, I point it out and, and acknowledge it. Yeah. Oh, there. I see you're there. I see you're waiting to, you know, kind of uh, take up all the oxygen in the room. I don't think that you need to do that. You can just tell me very quietly what you want me to know. And then I'm going to shift back to whatever it was I was doing. And I'll, yeah, I'll take in a little bit of what you said. 
because some of it is valuable. I don't want to discount it out of hand uh, because I think some criticism, you know, it's some inner critic is healthy, sure, right? There's a kernel of truth. I mean, it, it pops up because it means well. It wants us to pay attention to something. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to use a little plug here because I'm actually a trained facilitator for a program called Unwinding Anxiety, which was developed by Judson Brewer, who's a psychiatrist that runs the Center for Mindfulness out at Brown. And um, he is a five. And I think that the fives really can be drawn to mindfulness because it's a lot about training thoughts. And I think that when we start to look at judgments, we realize that they are fueled by anxiety. You know, the one has is sometimes called the perfectionist. You know, it really wants to get it right. It really wants to show up in the world in a way that is good. And so that judgment pops in because there's always something we can do better. And the one seems to be very highly attuned to noticing that. And if we don't have good skills, like you said, we can get hooked on that. And then the mm -hmm. level of activation and the level of tension and the fixation that can develop around what's lacking, as opposed to, um, I think it's Andrea Isaacson that says ones can be like, ah, eh, it's good enough. You know, like that's that arrow to seven where mm -hmm. you just can kind of let it go. That's really where the one who absolutely has enough of that get it right energy can invite in some of the, eh, okay, I hear you. It's fine. And in this program, Unwinding Anxiety, it really takes you through a 30-day curriculum around identifying those thoughts that take us onto an anxiety train and teaches us how to uncouple them exactly the way that you're doing. So for any listeners who are identifying with that inner critic, because that's definitely not something we find only in ones, I think we all have an inner critic we just have different ways of being with it. So thanks for highlighting that. Mm, sure. So do you want me to share a little bit about how I uh, found the Enneagram? And I do. How Tell us, how did, you, how did it come into your life? So I have this uh, story that kind of goes against everything that you're supposed to do when you're introducing somebody to the Enneagram. I was hosting a small meditation retreat in my home, and there was this one fellow in the retreat who was into the Enneagram in a very superficial way, you know, kind of like as a party game type of way. Mm -hmm. And so when we all, the retreat was over and a bunch of us went out to dinner and so we're sitting around the table and he starts doing this typical thing of talking a little bit about the Enneagram and then going around the table saying, oh, you're this, you're this, you're this, you're this. <laughs> Cringe, yeah. Everybody's type. And I was appalled. I mean, I had just, I read just enough about it to know you're not supposed to do that. And also to know that he was, I could tell, at least with two people, he was definitely way off the mark. So I didn't say anything, but he he identified me as a one. And and it was really comical because he said, and my father was a one. <laughs> and I That's thought, so oh, there's some daddy stuff there for sure. But I just found that a little bit amusing. And rather than running away from it because I was, you know, uh, you know, found, found his approach offensive, I just got curious. I wanted to know what the heck is he talking about? And so I got a copy of Wisdom of the Enneagram and I started reading it. And of course, I started with type one. 
And reading through it, I'm like, yep, that is definitely me. No doubt about it. And I took the ready test and yep, scored high on one. I also scored uh, high on nine, two and four. Mm -hmm. Very low, as I said, on three and eight and Mm -hmm. seven. I don't score super high on, but I'm working on it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I I don't know if it's that I have the five in me or what, but when I, since I was a child, whenever I get interested in something, it's like falling down a rabbit hole. I mean, I will just, I want to learn everything I can about that topic. Mm-hmm. I become obsessed. And that was the beginning of my obsession with the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. And I get obsessed in a way that is totally fun. I just think it's, it's fascinating. And I feel as though I could continue down that rabbit hole all the way to the end of my life. And I would still feel like I have so much more that I could learn because there's so many dimensions to this system, so many layers and levels and different perspectives. And it's always fluid and evolving. The better Enneagram teachers and philosophers, if you will, they're they're always looking at it with fresh eyes, as the Buddhists would say, yeah. and, and trying to see, oh, you know, maybe we misidentified this or maybe let's flesh this out a little bit more. And I love it. I absolutely yeah. love it. Can I reflect something back that I heard you say? Sure. Yeah. So... I'm wondering, because I know you said that you haven't spent that much time on tri-type, but since I enjoy tri-type, tri-fix, just for listeners, I think these are referring to the same thing. Um, I'm wondering if you might be a one, four, five tri-type, because the one is your core type through the body center. You named that you score pretty high on four. And Mm -hmm. I know that in our engagements, I think you do have that inward focus that um, fours often have. And then I'm hearing that five energy, which is that ability to go down a rabbit hole, to study something really intensely, to really get to the roots of it. And so I'm just curious, as I reflect that back to you, um, does that resonate that if you were to look at things in terms of tri-type that might resonate? I know just enough about trying time to have been curious about it and thought about, well, you know, if what would I be? I haven't really dove into it formally, but it's interesting because what you said is exactly where I've landed. I, I know that I have a lot of four in me. My my line to four from one is very heavily traveled. It was, you know, from childhood, I had so much so many ones or one wings and so forth in my family that I didn't get any traction with one. So I think I ended up going to four and on the low end of four and really uh, ex- just got anchored there in many ways to a point where probably at that point in my life, people looking at me, if they knew the Enneagram, they may have, may have misidentified me as a four. How do you know and, you're not a five? I'm just going to throw that out there for people that are learning about the Enneagram. Oh, gosh. Um, that's such a good question. I just, the energy of five is so different from my energy. My son is a five. And while, you know, we have some overlap, he is just so different from me. Um, 
How is he different? He has a lot of boundaries up about connecting with other people. He protects his his time and his space, his headspace and his literal space way beyond anything I've ever experienced in my own boundaries. And my boundaries are pretty strong, but not in that way. I mean, they're actually in comparison, they're very porous. Yeah. Whereas, you know, he doesn't think anything of not answering texts or emails or phone calls. Yeah. Me, I can't do that. I yeah. mean, I, I have to, and I have to do it as quickly as I realistically can because I feel a responsibility. I feel if I don't do it, okay, this is taking it all the way to the extreme. And I don't mean this literally, but there's this little part of me that thinks, well, if I don't do that, that means I'm a bad person, right? Yeah. I mean, hundred percent. Kind of like where you go with the one space is always worrying about people thinking that you're not good. And what is the, what is the opposite of good? It's bad. Right. Absolutely. Like my instinct is to push back on the word bad because I just like I'm so stuck in the gear of being good that I just like I know I'm not bad, but why am I being so good? Why am I trying so hard to be good all the time? It's because I don't want anyone to think that I'm bad. Yeah. Well, and let's just um, highlight here that you're also social dominant. So it's kind of a double whammy in that domain. I don't want to be bad. And the social connection is something that I'm going to pay a lot of attention to. So that can really almost layer on top. And I completely agree with you. Your energy is much more one than five. What I also see that you're speaking to about five is that the passion there is avarice, which um, means that I'm worried I'm not going to have enough to give to others. So they hold it very closely. That can look like self-preservation, but it's actually five. And so almost a self-preservation five kind of doubles down on that. Like I have a, a college roommate who's a self-preservation five and during her divorce, which was a time of stress, she actually reached out because her level of suffering was so high that she really was going to a stress arrow seven on some level and was like, come visit me in Florida. Like I need to connect. I need people because the pain of the divorce was really acute for her. And so for me, that was like, wow, let me buy a ticket. I'm there next weekend. Both because I deeply, my heart center was like, wow, like this was a shock for her and I really want to be there for her. But also because my seven's like, it's November, I'm going to Florida. And so, <laughs> and then I went back in January. And then the funny thing is that when I wanted to come, and then she actually came and visited me in September, which was also mind blowing because this is a five that does not use energy to really a self-press five, you know, she doesn't go out into the world that much. She's actually social blind, I think. The fact that we have a social connection, I take a sign of the highest positive, you know, regard. But then after that visit, when November, December is rolling around again, I'm like, it's been two or three months. Of course she wants to visit me. No, she had gone through her year of transitioning from the divorce, was no longer at her stress arrow of seven, and she has clamped right down again. And granted, she was one of the people that absolutely loved COVID because it gave her a reason to stay in her house and see no one and not feel strange about it. And as the world has opened up, 
Um, yeah, she's like hardcore. We haven't seen each other and we text, we talk. It's a real exercise for me to not take it personally, but those fives, man, I mean, when they do not want to engage, they're just not going to engage. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's a big struggle. You know, I, and to, to go to the instinct thing, I, I go back and forth almost daily in terms of whether I'm dominant and social or self-praise because they are both so alive in me. Tell us about that. Yeah. Like how do they both show up? Like, why do you go back and forth? Tell us about both. When I, when I say I go back and forth in terms of which is dominant, um, I, I don't know, I, with, I think I tend to be more neurotic in, in, in the self-praise area. Mm-hmm. I want and need things to be a certain way. If I'm going outside of my own personal environment, I want to know just all the typical self-pres type things of, okay, where am I staying? What's the environment going to be like? Am I going to have my needs met in terms of food, in terms of rest? If I walk in a room, what's the, how, is it well lit? Um, what's the chair configuration or all these kinds of self-pres things are really present for me whenever I'm even the least bit stressed. With so social, I tend to be more relaxed about it. Like it just comes very easily and naturally to me. I, in various ways. So those of you who who know uh, Russ Hudson's three uh, zones of instincts, you've got You've got the one, the first zone is tuning into others and where they're at. I do that in spades. That's why I was such a good coach is because I can really sense into the other person and feel where they are. I can do that in terms of reading the field in a room. So if I'm in, up in front of an audience, I can sense what's what's the buzz, what's what's the vi vibe in the room? Where do people want to go next? Are we ready to move on to the next part of this workshop or whatever, or do they need to flesh this out more? Are they needing a break? I'm very tuned in to what's happening in, in the room in that sense. And I want to echo that I see that in you. Like I've been in breakout groups with you. I've been in the green room with you. Like you do have this sense of rhythm in the group. And even on this podcast, I would have to say that that's an area because I'm not social dominant, that I can get kind of wrapped up wherever I am. And I'm just even enjoying the way that I can feel some stability and form from you, which really helps me. Mm, thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, that is something that, as I said, it comes naturally to me. And my understanding of the instincts, which may be uh, erroneous, but because uh, I'm not an expert in this area, but I, I've always thought that the dominant instinct is the one that you get, you know, that's what really tripped trips up, up, like neurotic about it. Yeah. yeah. And but that can I name something? When we've had some conversations, it sounds like you get pretty tripped up around like your relationship with your son and your daughter-in-law, which is social and that that is something that can spin in your brain. And I know yeah. that you had a challenging professional encounter this last year, which mm -hmm. that really took up a lot of space in your brain. So I'm just reflecting back that I'm wondering if when we're dominant, if we almost don't even realize we can get stuck there because of course this matters and is important. And the reason I'm so worked up about it is 
that's not neurotic. It's just true. Whereas I'm wondering if in that second zone, because it's not like the water you swim in as much. You can almost see the neuroses a little better. That was just what was rising up for me. I don't know if it's right. How is that landing on you? That's fascinating. And that could very well be accurate. So I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction, though, in that I think, and maybe this is just my wanting to let myself off the hook, but I think uh, I'd want to step away from getting too focused on some of the details of um, what instinct is dominant, what is secondary. Yeah. Blind spot, I think, is really important. Yeah. But I I do think for a lot of us, the first and second uh, instinct in our stack do tend to have some a lot of fluidity to them. So depending on what's happening in our life at that moment, they may switch places, uh, sometimes at different stages in, in our lives. Uh, they will switch places so that, you know, they may invert themselves. But the blind spot tends to stay the blind spot, as far as I can tell. Is that experience? Well, and let's get to the blind spot in a minute. I want to stay in this zone for just a second. And I'm just going to say what was coming up for me. So I was commenting on your experience. And the reason why I'm identifying as self-preservation dominant is For example, when I've been in partnership with somebody that isn't financially secure and isn't doing the things like filing taxes or, you know, just things that to me, I'm just like, what? Like, I can just get so mind blown that people don't do certain self-pres things that just sort of get your financial and domestic, like, to me, I get really, really scared around like, what do you mean you haven't gone to the dentist in five years? Like your teeth are going to fall out. Like people, patients come in. What do you mean you're, you never had a colonoscopy and you're 70 years old? Like I almost have a heart attack and it like blows my mind that people don't take care of themselves in these self pres ways. Cause I would just talk about that as like, the water that I swim in, it just seems so obvious. Whereas I'm identifying as social middle because I actually am more aware of my neuroses in social. Like, ooh, I didn't quite do that interaction so well. Or, oh, I love how Linda is like reading the vibe here. I'm going to kind of track and follow that. Because for me, when I am hanging out with somebody that's social dominant, the delta between what I can track and do with ease and where I get tripped up is a little more obvious to me. So that's just kind of what was popping when I was making that analogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And and that doesn't really <laughs> solve my problem though in terms no. of which is my dominant instinct. And it doesn't really matter. I agree with you. It's like just the more of a growth journey we do, the more we can discover our biases and where we do get hung up and what it's called. I, I, I agree with you. It doesn't really matter. But just to for the people who do think it matters, I'm just mm-hmm. kind of sharing how I'm thinking about it, not saying it's right or wrong. Absolutely. No, I hear you. And I think it can be very valuable information. And for some people, it's very clear, you know, what what their dominant instinct is. And then there are those people who just got it all backwards or whatever. And those of us in the middle who are just like, I'm not so sure. And what feeds into it is that one by its very nature, and I would say the sex, the same for six, we just naturally have a lot of self-presence, right? 
it, it is like we we want to take care of things. We want when you things- say we, who are you talking about? You said ones. We. Oh, ones. ones. Yeah. Ones and sixes. So, okay. I'm going to bring in something from David Gray right now, where mm-hmm. he actually puts a stack on each type. So three by nature is social. Okay. Mm -hmm. Threes are tracking what's going on with the other because we're image focused and we want to please you. And this is why I sometimes know I can be neurotic about social stuff because at the end of the day, I want to be successful and I want to look good and I want to, you know, I want to not fail. Mm -hmm. So threes are inherently going to have some social in there. Now, ones are social self-prez, that that's sort of their underlying, um, you know, you can be any instinctual stack, but by its very nature, type ones are attending to what is right, what is wrong, and what mm-hmm. is it that creates what is right, what is wrong? It's culture, it's society. Yeah. So this is why all ones on some level will be aware of social, but the reason self-pres is secondary for type one is because they tend to want to be a little more careful and a little bit more safe. So regardless of stack, that's what David Gray would say about point one. And it does resonate with me on some level. Mm-hmm. My dad's an eight and that one is self-pres social. Because if you think of the eight, they kind of worry about what's good for them and then mm-hmm. sort of socially make that happen by navigating the group. Whereas mm-hmm. one is kind of flipped. They tend to be social self-prez. And I've read that um, Beatrice Chestnut wrote that eights and ones can be similar, but ones tend to be hyper-social and eights tend to be, when they're not healthy, a little more antisocial. They're not as worried about what the world is gonna think about their behavior whereas ones get a little more hung up on that. Does that resonate? Uh, yeah, up to a point. Um, I, I would say eights in general, their, social, their inner critic is much uh, less turned on. The volume is much lower than it is in, in one, if that's what you're referring to, in terms of not being as concerned about what other people are yeah, thinking. that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So I will say for me, that zone that we were referring to about tuning into others is so strong in me that that's part of the reason why I sometimes tend to lean towards thinking I'm more social. There's also the second zone of affiliations, relating, building structures, building connections with people, cultivating friends, allies, people who are on my side. I do all of that. You yeah. know, that's. That's big for me. And then the third zone is participation and contri- uh, contribution, finding our place in the world, being a team. My yeah. God, you know, like, yeah, is where I live from. And so all three zones are critically important to me. And and so then I think, well, I'm definitely social. And then I look at the list for self-pres. I like check all the boxes on that too. So who knows? I mean, all I know is that it's all in the mix and then it's all intertwined with my my type, Mm -hmm. you know, the type one and that need to, you know, get things in alignment, to be right, to have things just so. And by things, I'm talking about a whole range, you know, for some, some type ones could care less what they're, that their house is a mess. I mean, I, my daughter is a, I shouldn't say this because she might listen to this, but she is not 
She's not as... Um, oh, you can say she's a mess. I think that daughters uh, of type ones often are messy because you guys were so clean and orderly. So for me, it's a little bit of the de-identification from my mom. And absolutely. I'm very, very conscious of my home, which is why I have somebody that I pay to come and support me to keep my self-pres world in order. But it's almost like I didn't develop that because my mom was so strong in it, but I know it's important and I get it done. But yeah, if I showed you my desk right now, I mean, I make my point one mother insane because there's always something for her to improve. But I think it's a gift because you guys love picking up after us, don't you? <laughs> I don't know if I would say we love it. <laughs> we are doing it compulsively. So I don't know that there, sometimes I love it. Like if I'm just feeling like a low level of stress in my life about something, uh, then, yeah, I love doing the little busy work of um, housekeeping, not the heavy duty stuff, but tidying up and uh, putting things in their place and so forth. That, that makes me feel calmer. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, if I have somebody coming into my space and making a train wreck of a yeah. day after day, I can get really really tense. But I want to highlight that's your space. Whereas when it's somebody else's space, you're not identifying with their mess. Their mess isn't yours. And you mm -hmm. actually enjoy being able to move in and in a very simple way, improve something, even if it's put some dishes in the dishwasher, wouldn't you say? That's true. That's true. And I am very mindful about not verbalizing if I think Oh, you know, <laughs> when was the last time you vacuumed? Uh, well, that's your nine wing because yeah, yeah. my two wing mother is like, oh my God, this is disgusting. How can you live this way? Let me help you. <laughs> no, I don't. I definitely don't do that. I had, uh, like I said, I come from a family with both of my parents. My father was a, a one and my, with a strong two wing and my mother was a nine with a strong one wing, both of them very unhealthy. And so I kind of learned from them what not to do. Mm -hmm. Well, this In is a great example of how we're mirroring our parents. It's like, you know, for all the crap that I give my parents, you know, in these little commentaries, I always feel like it's so important to say like, but I also have my gifts and my biggest strengths because of where you didn't meet me. And I cultivated that where you did meet me. I was able to just interpret it as annoying and know that it's taken care of and ignore the value of it. And so, you know, when I drop under and look at the things that bother me, I'm so grateful my mom does those things. And um, the reason I get triggered is because I have some shame about the fact that I don't put my attention there. And on some level, I wish I had more bandwidth for that. I love that so much. That's beautiful. Yeah. So I want to bring in another aspect of social Please, that yes. I mentioned to you Yes, that's come to me recently. And last night I listened to your interview with Ben, which I absolutely loved. And Ben was in our green room last year. So we both got to know him there. And uh, he's just, um, yeah, he's doing some really brilliant work. I was delighted because he was talking about and I can't remember if you specified the so I think he did the social aspect of moving into our relationship with the earth. Yes. And our connection with that and how vitally important that is 
So coincidentally, or maybe a lot of other people are coming up with the same realization, we have been talking for years about the social instinct in terms of how we interact with other people, right? It's about other people. I mean, supposedly mammals, uh, the social instinct came about because of our need to care for our babies because they can't just go off on their own. Exactly. we need to connect with other people in order to take care of them. It's not something we can do solo. So it's all been focused on me and other people when, when we think of social, but there's a whole nother dimension. And I think the fact that we haven't focused on it is a big part of the reason why we're in such a crisis environmentally. Yes. We are so cut off from our natural environment that we're totally focused on people and men person-made things, human-made things. And what we want to bring back online, which the indigenous had, it was there because it is part of our instinct. It's It's natural. It's not something we, we, we need to relearn it. We need to open back up to it. It is completely natural. And there's been a lot happening recently that, um, has given me hope that this is becoming more of a, an awareness and a mindset. Um, for example, there was a, a book I read last winter in a study group called Braiding Sweetgrass, which some of your viewers may have heard from. It, it was a big, you know, I don't know if I would say blockbuster, but it's came out a decade ago and it's still selling strong. This woman who wrote it, she is a, a scientist, a um, environmental. Uh, she's an environmentalist. Uh, her name is Robin Wall Kimmerer, K I M M E R E R, and she's a professor of forest and environmental biology. And she's also a Native American, so she's still very tapped into her Native American culture and roots. And she has made it her path to teach her students to connect with the natural world. So when she was going through all the way through school, getting her degrees, she had a hard time because she had to shut off that part of her that understood biology, that understood forestry from the perspective of these are life forms. These yeah. they're, they're part of an internet interconnected web of all life. Yes. And her professors didn't want to hear that. You know, they were they were just down to the cellular level and and uh, focused on that. Well, she got all that in space. She's a very uh, scientifically oriented and brilliant woman, but she wanted to weave the two together and bring the perspective of this holistic perspective that the indigenous have. She wanted to bring that in. Mm. And so she has a whole process that she puts her students through of taking them into the forest and spending uh, a lot of time there just looking on a micro level, like what's under the surface of the ground that you're standing Mm. on. And, and let's, you know, really feel into that and feel rain coming down or the sun It's I just, her book is like poetry. And if you haven't read it again, it's braiding sweetgrass. And then around the same well, let time. Let me pause though. I just want to reflect back that there's this real energetic quality of our connection with things in nature 
that I'm hearing you describe. And mm -hmm. I think that's such a gift. And I do think that Ben is trying to bring that into our Enneagram studies. I know that there's a retreat that he has going on this spring. So here's another plug for Ben, where he's going to take a small group of people into the wild and say, if you're connecting with your eight energy, where does your attention go in nature? If you're connecting in nine, what can you go and be with there? And to just recognize that these different energies of the Enneagram are existing, not just within humans, but even within the earth. And how can we use what we're seeing in nature to also help us connect with what lives deeply inside of us. And I just think that's a really exciting way to think about this. And it sounds like that's what she might be writing about as well. Mm, that's brilliant. I love the way that you took in what, what Ben was speaking of and, and brought it to life even, even more so from an Enneagram perspective. If anyone is interested in this kind of orientation, I can't think of a more amazing person to work with than Ben, and I, I would highly uh, recommend checking. And he's his up in Maine. I'm going to go to Maine for the first time next month. I hear it's beautiful. It sounds like a great place to connect with nature. I love Maine. It's it's just a a place of yeah, totally different energy from where I live. I'm in southern New England, so uh, very different vibe. Yeah. And so then there's been all kinds of other things. There's a woman, Suzanne Sim Simard, uh, who wrote the book um, uh, about mother trees. Her research has all been done on mother trees, which is like this one tree in each one tree in each forest that all the trees around depend on that one mother tree. There's communication amongst them. They share they share nutrients yeah, there's just like this whole system of interconnection, interbeing. The movie that, Avatar is coming up. Did you see that movie? That's one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah, and that a perfect representation of it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for giving us this view of the social instinct. I think that this is what happens to the social instinct when we start taking it up to the higher vibrational levels. In my own experience, my social instinct as a self-pres three was mostly focused on meeting my life goals. And, you know, I had these four kids and I, I mourn actually that I didn't raise them with more social consciousness because I was just kind of overwhelmed with a lot of the self-pres stuff that came up when I was raising them. And now that my youngest has started high school and what I'm finding is that my social field is now expanding. And now all of a sudden my awareness and my care for people outside of my small world I just sense that like it can ripple and ripple and ripple and expand to include the entire planet, like you're saying, and that just feels so heartwarming to think about the social instinct in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's so important for our survival to really feel into that, even if we're not, whether we're strong in social instinct or not, it, it's just, it's something that we need to activate within ourselves and doing it if if it's not something that you do naturally on your own, then seek out somebody like Ben and there, 
if you're in another part of the country, you want to go in a different direction. There are other, a lot of other people doing similar workshops. Mark Coleman is somebody I'll plug. He's doing it on the West Coast and he leads trips to Baja, Mexico, kayaking trips. So many people are leaning into this space and it's really, really inspiring and beautiful. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think we should turn to the blind spot, Linda. Let's talk a little bit about um, what you know about your blind spot why you identify as sexual blind and what's been uh what what's what's waking up for you right now around it yeah so obviously the challenge of talking about the blind spot it is blind spot so it's i'm i'm less aware of it and i'm trying to really pay attention to the ways that it could come alive with me um in in different aspects of the way i express myself the way that i uh, experience life. Uh, the the two ways that I've always been aware that it does very naturally, organically come alive for me is through music and dance, mm. and both have been very important in my life. Um, by dance, I've I've done uh, ex I guess you could call it expressive dancing, not. I mean, I have some training in formal dance, but what I've been drawn to the last 15, 20 years is dance that kind of gets you out of your box and gets you into the rhythm of the music. And mm. you just, you know, I yeah. can feel a wild woman just letting it go and and music that has a very strong pulse yeah. to it is um, I, I'm drawn to that. And that definitely, for obvious reasons, it activates that sexual instinct. Have you heard of five rhythms dancing? Yes. Yeah. I Yeah, I haven't studied it specifically, but I've had teachers who are trained in it. So I, I do have some experience with that. But that's kind of getting into the realm of where my orientation has been mm -hmm. with movement. You know, I call it dance, but it's maybe more appropriate to call it movement. Yeah. Well, and... For those of us like me who don't who feel very awkward on the dance floor, um, what I loved about Five Rhythms is that it really is just about dropping into the music. And my understanding is that there are these like five archetypal rhythms that we can connect with in the body. And when we just allow it to flow into us and open up the body to moving in whatever feels most natural, that it really can open up some of these sexual blind blockages that I think can exist inside of us. So now I'm suddenly curious and I want to go get out some five rhythms music I have again and connect that way. I think that's a really great strategy. Yeah, I used to for years do a program called Journey Dance, which is uh, shamanic dancing. And it's always done, usually done with live music, sometimes, sometimes not, but it's music with a, a very strong uh, shamanic pulse to it you know that heartbeat pulse and it it just takes you into an imaginal realm that gets you out of your head and into your body if you let it i mean a lot of people just it scares them they don't want to go there for me i love it you know it's just so great live uh, more quickly than anything else it's only been very recent in, in my life that i've started developing an appreciation for classical music uh, mm -hmm. and particularly, um, uh, yeah, I forget the name of it, but 
because I, I always wanted that, you know, that strong pulse that, that would wake me up, that would wake up that, that horror yeah. uh, within me. Um, it's anger is another aspect so that, that I, I struggle with as a one. Of course, the gut center triad, uh, eight, nine, and one, we all have uh, different aspects of the major uh, anger issues. Yeah. Every type has, but the gut center expresses those um, issues more fully. Yeah. And so the eight, it, it's like they feel the anger the most directly. They yeah. feel it moving through their bodies and it's up and out. You know, they don't have a problem expressing it. Yeah. Uh, they don't need to, they don't try to repress it typically. Uh, as they get healthier, they'll work with it and find cleaner ways, mm -hmm. less, you know, bull, uh, bull in the china cabinet or whatever the expression is. But that their natural impulse is to just, you know, I'm angry. I'm going to let you know. Yeah. The nine goes numb. You know, mm -hmm. they start feeling angry. They often don't even realize it. They just numb it out. And maybe if they're self-prez, they might start start eating a lot. Mm -hmm. They'll find some strategy so they don't have to feel that anger in their body. Yeah. The one for ones, you know, speak for myself as a one. I feel it. I feel I feel like I feel almost everything in my body. My body is just like I couldn't not feel if I tried. Mm. I'm always amazed. Many years ago when I started doing my work as a coach, I was so I was stunned to realize how many of my clients were cut off from their bodies. Yeah. And I it just it saddened me because that's just the pulse of life. If you don't feel what's moving through your body, you're missing such a huge part of, of the life experience. So I feel it when anger rises within me. I'm not oblivious to it. I definitely feel it. Mm -hmm. I have this reaction formation, which ones have reaction formation is when you do the opposite of what you're feeling with the anger. So rather than expressing the anger, you're nice, you're gracious, <laughs> you know, you're just like, so it's okay. I understand. They and might kill you with kindness. Totally. Yeah. Yes. The great expression. So I'm kind of like nice, 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 whomp. You yeah. know, I just want smack them. And <laughs> pretty, it's not especially healthy. So I've worked for years on trying to learn how to noticing the notice the anger as it's arising mm -hmm. and try and work with it yeah. within myself and then get to a place where I can figure out how to express it to the other person yes. in a way that they can hear me. Yes. Well, and I'm just going to name that as a three, I resonate with that relationship to anger because I think especially as a woman, angry women are not really embraced in our society. So I don't think it's so much that I personally think my anger is bad. I actually feel pretty self-righteous and I have every right to be angry in this moment, but I do this reaction formation thing both because I grew up watching my mom do it. So I think some of that is just, I mirror it and I know how to do that. But then secondly, in order to meet my goals as a three, 
in terms of my objective, in terms of being successful, I've often been working in the world with a lot of men and, you know, they shut down angry women pretty quickly. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you can get more bees with honey, you know, just learning I'm angry right now, but how can I make this anger come across in a way that you're still going to stay open to and like, so Mm -hmm. just to say how another type might be in relationship to that. And I really think gender plays a lot, a large role into our experience of anger. I'm so glad you brought that up. That is such a crucial point. And the cultural aspects of all these issues come comes into play and we need to be so aware of it because we so often think, oh, this is my issue. Well, how much is it of yours and how much of it is the culture that you're living within? And whether you're a woman or whether uh, you're in a marginalized community of any form, there is a lot that you're dealing with that is not your personal issue. And we as culture have tried to make it that, you know, to put the onus on you to solve it. And I mean, look in terms of motherhood, how we, we make women feel so guilty because they're not juggling a thousand balls and doing it all on their own. And I have to interrupt you on that one. There's an amazing book that just came out called the school for good mothers and it is on a bestseller list and whatnot. Interestingly, my point one mother couldn't read it because I think those judgments were just somewhere in her core. It like she had to put it down, which whenever somebody can't read something, I then have to read it. And when I was reading it, I was just like, oh, oh my God, this book is brilliant. It's exquisitely painful to read. It's a dystopian kind of handmaid's tale kind of book about motherhood. And it's one of these things where it takes what we currently experience and makes it just a little bit more messed up and puts us into a slightly futuristic world that is not that hard to imagine that we're moving towards. And just about how being a perfect mother, a good mother is almost an exercise in futility. And they take these women who, yeah, they had a bad day. You know, they showed up with their child. You know, we even see this, the footage of the mom that kind of loses her crap with her child one day. And they put them, they take their children away and they put them in a school and they have to go on this brainwashing campaign where they have to every day, they get a robot baby that is like an AI, like almost real creature. And it has video cameras for eyeballs. And so it's recording every mother's facial expression, emotion, word, and then that gets played back and every single fault is pointed out and they have to recite, I'm a bad mother, but I'm learning to be good. Or I am a narcissist. I am a danger to my child. And this is like programmed into these women. So if you have the stomach for it, it's a very interesting social commentary. But I, as a mother of four children, and I know you've raised children, I think it's so important to highlight that one energy that I think lives inside every mother. Because with Instagram and all the comparing, it's a tough role. Absolutely. Absolutely. The social context is so important to understand. And I know so many mothers of young children who 
whatever their type is, they get freaked out because there are moments where they just, they're in such overwhelm and they, in the moment, just lose it with, with one of their kids and then feel so much guilt and remorse about it. Mm -hmm. And yet, yeah, it's, I'm not saying it's okay to scream at your kids or whatever, but you know what? It's a social, it's a cultural issue that you're not getting the support that you need to do the childcare that you want to do, the way you want to raise your children, the kind of mother that you want to be, it's, it takes yeah. a village, you So know? having that frustration flood in a moment is something that most point ones probably have a lot of compassion for because that happens. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. talk a little bit, Linda, about holy anger and your connection to this. And you and I both studied in the green room last year with Russ, where we also were learning about the Latayef. And Mm -hmm. I'm also in a diamond group where I just got off of a five day retreat, where we were talking all about the red essence, which is our connection to strength and aliveness and expansion. And fake red comes across as you know, anger and judgment and all of those unhealthy expressions of anger. But I think it's really important that we start to reclaim our anger. And I do believe that there's something about the sexual instinct in those of us that have been sexual blind. We have mentioned that the sexual instinct is not particularly nice. It's the social instinct that's nice. We can get some indignation in the social zone. But at the end of the day, it's really prioritizing working with others, which is where I think that reaction formation comes from. If I don't keep a lid on this anger, that's going to sabotage a social goal. Whereas Mm -hmm. also for self-pres, you know, we're kind of building, it's more of a building energy as opposed to that sexual, which if we, you know, take John's model with, you know, sexual competition, it's kind of mean, it's kind of aggressive. I think there is sort of a warrior, angry energy that can be associated with aspects of the sexual instinct. So that's sort of how I'm tying it all together. And I'd love to hear what's resonating with you, what's different, and introduce us to this concept of holy anger and your experience of it. One of the things that comes up for me in terms of, and I don't know if I invented, the, <laughs> where did I get the term holy anger? I mean, it just seems like it's out there, but I, I don't know that it's specifically used as an Enneagram term. Anger is a gut level emotion, right? I mean, it is an instinct. It comes from our gut center, from deep down in our belly. It is primal. Yes. And to ignore it means that it's going to come out one way or another. We're going to leak it. And it's not it's going, it's not going to be pretty. Mm-hmm. Or it's going to get so, if we don't leak it, it's just going to get so constricted. We'll feel it in our bodies. We may we may develop a, a disease or condition if it goes on long term where we have this chronic, you know, I don't Some people say cancer is a manifestation of unexpressed anger. Mm-hmm. So even on a purely physiological issue, that lack of awareness of how to express our anger and to own it is so vitally important in the health of our personal well-being and also our collective well-being. 
So we're typically not taught how to be angry. We're just told not to do it. Yes. And as girls in particular, uh, we have it drummed into us from when we're little that that's not okay. At least in my generation, I think it's gotten a lot better. But in my generation, it was just totally not acceptable. That was not a feminine quality. So actually, (laughs) in the bigger scheme of things, it is in the sense that if you look at, for example, in the Hindu religion, they have the goddess Kali, K-A-L-I, who is one of the primary goddesses. And she represents red, anger, energy. You know, she is about vengeance. You know, she's about... She a badass bitch. She is a badass bitch. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, it's kind of like, okay, if I'm I'm not Christian, but if you are the analogy of Christ going into the temple and upending all the, the tables, you know, yes. this is not right. Yes. You. you know, yes. I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I'm mad as hell and I'm not taking it anymore. And that red energy just comes... You know, it's like that that dragon breathing. Yeah, absolutely. I want to name that in my diamond group, we were practicing working with the superego in this way, that when we see the superego rise up and giving us a particularly hard time, we were actually practicing giving ourselves a superego message in a gestalt way, going and sitting and receiving it and letting it land and then connecting with that holy anger and saying, stop. You don't get to talk to me that way. No. So it's literally just putting up a boundary against Mm -hmm. the superego. And it really felt empowering. I invite people to just play with that a little bit. Mm, Yes. You know, in some of my movement classes, we used to do things like that. There's, um, I think it's from, uh, is it Samoan or there's one indigenous culture where they have this posture they take where they just like, you know, you put yeah. plant both feet on the floor and you just go, ah, yeah. and stick your tongue out and you just, you know, it's like you're making this statement. No, yes. Yes. absolutely no, that's not okay. You cannot do that. It just energetically, it feels fantastic. Absolutely. And when you're doing it, they do this as a dance, you know, as a group dance and it's just so... It's so healing, you know, to just kind of express yourself in that way in a a culturally contained manner. So they have figured out that this is just part of being human. We need to be able to express it. Yes. The war paint and all of that. It's a way of owning that anger and and, uh, allowing it to come out in ways that you know, if it needs to be, it can be destructive. And there are times when it, it ha- that has to happen. But a lot of times it's more like just, you know, getting it out of your system. So I was looking online last night and trying to figure out where did I get that term? Where is, did I just make up holy anger? So I Googled it. And one thing that came up was um, someone said that holy anger is dispassionate anger And there's a Bible quote from St. Paul, be angry and keep your aim. I love that Mm. because that gets into the Enneagram where the term, the the nine types of the Enneagram are 
come from the seven deadly sins. Yes. So the sins are not really sins as we've been taught, you know, in, in church. Losing and what, your aim, right? Exactly. Missing the mark. Yeah. In the mark. There's a Greek term for it, which I'm not going to try and pronounce. Um, but it's all about missing the mark. It's yeah. not like you're being a bad person. It's like, you know, I, I was trying to do something and man, I just... Absolutely. It's like the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? That's beautiful. Yes. Yes. So if we take that whole onus off of it about judgment around mm -hmm. anger and we soften it or sin, sin is just like, oh, you know, it doesn't yeah. really help a whole lot to, to put that label on something. And well, we I just, think there's so much cultural context and there's been a lot of violence even within organized religion that when we use these words sin and, you know, if we back it up to what the original meaning was, they're actually great words, but they come with a lot of cultural baggage now. Yes, absolutely. So if we start moving away from that and looking at the, the, the um, linguistical and cultural antecedents, we get a clear sense of what is this all about? You know, archetypes. And there's so many different ways that we can come at this. So the goddess Kali, she's an archetype. I mean, yeah. we all have Kali in us. And there's no, if we try and repress that, we're not doing anybody any favors. So I had a situation come up where I realized all of a sudden that I had been experiencing some grief this summer over a leadership, a major leadership role that I had been in for two or three years. And I was letting go of it because the organization I was in it was just, there was so much in there that was just toxic. It was so out of alignment. And as a one, I was like, no, this isn't right. You'll bring it so, back in alignment or kill yeah. yourself trying. I, I, was, I didn't want to kill myself trying. <laughs> I was heading in that direction. I'm like, no, Linda, really, uh, you yeah. can't do this on your own. It's it was just the whole system was was too too messed up. So I had so much grief, yeah, letting this go. I was just, you know, there are times where my heart was just aching because I I loved this organization so much, and all of a sudden, I, last week, it just came. Up And this is what happens with the instinct. It's just like, boom, Yeah, there it was the anger underneath that grief, the yeah. anger that I had been not really allowing myself to tap into. I love of that. Just like, shit, you know, yeah. come on, guys, this didn't have to happen. Right. And of course, I'm thinking, if you just listen to me, yeah. <laughs> I heard that everything's right. But you know, on, it was much more visceral than that. It, I wasn't up in my head. It was just like this full body. Oh, I love that. Um, and you know what? You're highlighting for me that the way we experience these emotions is also going to be related to type. So when we know that a one in stress goes down to four, which is sort of a sad energetic point, there's that grief there. But then as you sort of reclaim your holy anger, it's like you can access anger to sort of clear the field and move through this experience. Where for me as a three, most people who know threes know that we can get impatient and snippy and angry. And 
and we're not as nice about it as ones. That's one way you might know you're a three if you actually identify with being angry and annoyed with how slow and inefficient people are, you might be a three. Um, and what I've had to do is actually recognize that my expressions of anger are not always healthy and perpetuate anger in the system. So if I can learn how to sit with my anger and be with it in a way that plugs the holes in my red essence and actually allow it to move in, what I find underneath my anger is grief. So I actually go the opposite way and being heart-centered, it's that ability to hold the duality of my disappointment and my anger and my frustration, but get beneath it to the grief. It just shows how different types are going to mm -hmm. access and work with these emotions in different ways, but just hearing individual stories. And as you use the Enneagram, I think this really can can be a powerful way to bring ourselves back to essence, because regardless of your point, that's hopefully what we're all trying to practice. I love what you just did, because you, you really beautifully demonstrated, articulated how all these different elements come together and are woven together. And the more that we're aware of that and we can start to tease them out and often we can't do that until after the fact we may not be able to do it while it's happening but it gets the distance between uh, our stuckness stuckness and then figuring it out gets shorter and shorter but what you just said is like for example when you were talking about my going to four with my grief, that is so true. And I hadn't even thought of that. That is absolutely true. That is a real pattern for me. And then, and what's interesting is the sexual four is it's angry. The most angry point. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so it's the medicine. It's like when we can actually come into balance and hold all of these, we can actually do some self-inquiry and say, what is needed here? It's when I get to the grieving part of that social four, which is kind of melancholy, can I pull in my blind spot energy of the sexual instinct so that I can bounce that back up to my superpower of one and stand there in my holy anger and now have have an ability to respond in whatever way is most skillful, which may be doing something and maybe being with it and allowing it to clear. Mm, I, that's brilliant. Yes. Thank you. This is, again, I feel like every time I talk to you, I'm like processing something, mm. whether that was my intention going into it or not, but I, I, you well, really- Well, me as well. Like, it's just so much gratitude. And I love these episodes. They're kind of long. I'm wondering how our listeners are appreciating them, but I feel like we get really deep and we unpack a lot and people can listen to them, you know, at whatever pace that they want. But um, yeah, Linda, I just want to thank you so much for showing up in your full self and having this conversation with me. And I hope it's not our last one. I think the listeners... Um, I mean, I learned so much, and so I can only hope that other people do too. Thank you so much, Kara. This has been, you know, I've kind of gone from being freaked out about doing it to being like, wow, that was actually fun. See, you were brilliant, just like I knew you would be, that essential value. I'm like, oh, everybody's got to hear Linda. So thanks for being with us. Well, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while Essence MD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.